we've kind of ended in verse 11 in chapter 18. And Jesus said to Peter, put up thy sword into the sheaf, the cup, which the Father hath given me. Shall I not drink it? And we pick up in verse 12. Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now, Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And that disciple was known unto the high priest, and he went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood without at the door, and then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. First denial. And the servants and the officers stood there, who had made a fire of coals, because it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. And the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. And Jesus answering him said, I spake openly to the world, ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, in, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them that heard me, what I have said unto them, behold, they know what I have said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, and they said there unto him, Art not thou one of his disciples? And he denied it and said, I am not. And then one of the servants of the high priest, being a kinsman, to the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? And Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. So we come into this scene now of Jesus in the hands of Annas. John is the only one that gives that to us as we move from this to the house of Caiaphas, we have that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the scholars go back and forth. Are there six trials or are there five trials? If there's six trials, they recognize here under the hand of Annas, then Caiaphas, then the Sanhedrin, then Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate. Those who recognize five see him here with Annas, then Caiaphas and Sanhedrin as one trial 
then Pilate, Herod, and back to Pilate. The point is we're going to go through a series of trials as we move into this portion of Scripture. And this is the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of eternity. This is the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of eternity. It says the band and the captains and the officers of the Jews, they bound him. They took him and they bound him. The son of God bound by his captors. And so it begins, this passion. He had settled it with the father in Gethsemane. Three times as he prayed, Father, let this cup pass, but not my will, thine be done. And here he says to Peter, put your sword away. Should I not drink the cup the Father's given to me? And the beginning of that cup was here, him being bound. I, again, I remember, I think of Psalm 8, David, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who has set thy glory above the heavens, yet out of the bow, mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained praise to still the enemy. Little kids can sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible loves, tells me so, and mean it out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. And David says, when I consider the sun and the moon and the stars, the work of thy fingers, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? And here we have the word put on human flesh, dwelling among us. And at this point, because he has in Gethsemane settled the fact that he would take the cup that the Father was giving to him, it tells us at this point he's bound. Imagine this, Jesus, the creator, bound by the creation. The sinless one, bound by the sinful. The omnipotent one, bound by by fetters. And it says there are three classes that, of people that carry this out. Uh, there is first, it tells us, the band. Then there is the captain. And then the officers. The band is the cohort. Religious, uh, the military authority, 600 men in a cohort. The captain is the tribune who oversaw 600. The centurion oversaw 100. Tribune oversaw a, a cohort. And then lastly, it says the officers, these are Levites. These are the temple police. And they're there. And they take part in binding him to take him away. And he's not bound by them, by the way. He's bound by love. He could have easily dealt with the situation. He could have smitten them so they didn't understand one another, like he did at Babylon and dispersed the tongues among the nations. He gave strength to Manoah's son, Samson, who was bound by ropes and snapped them like cords. Couldn't he do the same here with less effort? We think of Second Kings. He just told Peter, Matthew tells us, I could have called 12 legions of angels. 
there's nothing in this group of men that have the authority or the power to bind the Son of God. He's bound by love, John 3.16. He's taking the Father's cup. He's bound by our need of redemption to be unbound, to be taken out of the slave market, redemption. He's bound by the sins that bound us, that we might be set free from them. He's bound by the things that bound us. I think back to those days before I was saved. Drugs, immorality, anger. And he was bound so that I could be unbound. He was bound so that the sins that bound me would no longer have a hold on my life. A necessary picture he's fulfilling tells us in Genesis 22 that when Abraham took Isaac and they went to Moriah, that after Abraham had built the altar, he bound Isaac and laid him on the altar. Picture of Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 118 says, Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. The binding. And here, Jesus fulfilling, he's bound by these men. And then it says he's led to the house of Annas. He's not driven. He's not dragged. He's led willingly. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that. He was willing. He was led. And it tells us now to the house of Annas. Uh, Ananus, <coughs> son of Seth, of Aaron's line, invited to Jerusalem by Herod the Great from Alexandria, where he lived. And Herod the Great appointed him <coughs> high priest in Jerusalem. The problem was Herod the Great also deposed him. He was high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD. And he was supposed to be high priest in Numbers 35, um, Exodus 40. Once you were high priest, you were high priest for the rest of your life until you died. That was your term. Herod the Great overrode that, and then the Romans, in like manner, put out the high priest when they wanted, put in their own high priest when they wanted. So though Annas at this point in time, verse 19 and 22, call him the high priest, though he is set aside and Caiaphas has been put in by the Romans, <clears throat> the Jews still recognize Annas as the high priest. So influential was Annas that five of his sons become high priest. His grandson becomes high priest. And the man that married his daughter, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is put in as high priest. And he is there from 18 to 36 A.D. He is there for 18 years. It's the longest reign of any high priest in New Testament times. So he comes now to the house of Annas, respected by the Jews as the true high priest. Somewhere between 60 and 80, it's hard to be dogmatic, an older man. And he knows Jesus. Jesus twice had come into the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. 
and those that sold doves and so forth. The Talmud refers to how crooked Annas was. He was the one who ran in the temple courts the tables of the money changers and those who sold animals. And when hundreds of thousands of Jews would come from the Roman world, they couldn't use Roman coinage or Greek coinage because that had an image on it. They had to exchange their farm money for the temple shekel, and they charged them exorbitant prices to exchange their money. Once they exchanged their money, then they had to buy a lamb or an animal that the priest had inspected, and the prices of those animals were through the roof. And if you were local and brought your own animal, they found something wrong with it, a spot or blemish, so you had to buy from them. So they said that Annas ran this, you know, this thing in the temple. They called it the bazaar of Annas. Jesus, when he comes in and overturns the tables of the money changers and so forth, he says, look, he says, it's written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So Annas knew him, undoubtedly. Annas had seen him and followed him, with no doubt with spies. He had known what he was doing. And now he's in power, and it says that they led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year, the same year that Christ was crucified. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient, it was necessary that one man should die for Hooper instead of, in place of, the people. And he's referring to chapter 11 where he quotes Annas. It says, one of, Caiaphas, one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, you know nothing at all. Thanks. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for, again, instead of the people, that the whole nation perish not. He's worried about Roman authorities. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So John tells us he was prophesying. He prophesied about substitutionary atonement, that, they, that one man should die instead of the people. The, the great you know, consolation that you and I have, and it seems like it takes us a lifetime to learn it, is we do something, if you're, oh man, I blow it. Oh, God's going to get me. God's going to, mean, oh, no, 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 I believe in the grace of God. So, you know, the thing is, we, we have to finally settle on this fact. We can have peace because we have a substitute. Someone has died in our place. Someone has taken our punishment. Someone has borne all of our sin from yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He prophesied. John says that's the Caiaphas that said this and didn't realize what he was saying in the temple precincts. And it says, and Simon followed Jesus. Perfect tense here. Continued following him as they stayed behind him, but he continued to follow. And so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest, and John doesn't name himself. 
and went in with Jesus, right with Jesus, into the palace of the high priest of Annas. But Peter stood at the door without, then went out that other disciple, notice again, which was known unto the high priest, and he spake unto her that kept the door, and he brought in Peter. So we have this interesting picture of regard for John, it seems, by the high priest. He says he's known twice of the high priest. Uh, that word there, the way it's written, gnostos, it isn't that he's known in a casual acquaintance. It means he's known more intimately. In fact, the Septuagint, when it translates that word, gnostos, they translate it a close friend. So somehow, John the Apostle is close friends. He has an intimate acquaintance with Annas, with the high priest. Now, it's interesting if we look at this. His mother was Salome. We know that. If you read Mark 15 and John chapter 19, the description of the women at the cross... Mark 15 names Salome there with the other women and names them. John 19 doesn't name Salome Salome there, but it says Mary, the mother of our Lord, and her sister were there. And from early on, the church tradition was that Salome was the sister of Mary, the mother of the Lord, who was cousin to Elizabeth, the wife of of Zechariah, the high priest, Luke chapter 1, verse 5, which would mean that John is a member of the priestly family. He has Aaron's blood in his veins. He is participating in a very successful fishing business in Galilee. His father has many hired hands and numerous boats. And he's known intimately to the high priest, no doubt, because he's a member of the priestly family. We're told that Polycrates, the, Ephes- uh, the bishop of Ephesus, 187 uh, to 198 B.C., said that he was a member of the priestly family. That's recorded by Eusebius in Ecclesiastical Histories, for those of you who want to torture yourself and go there. But there's evidence for this in the early church. And so he's known to the high priest. And then he goes out then, and he gets Peter and gets the woman who's keeping the door to let him in. So he comes in and then saith, the tense is, she kept saying, the damsel that kept the door and opened the door to Peter, Art thou not, notice she says this, also, so she knows John as one of his disciples, art thou not also one of this man's disciples? And he says, I am not. It's first denial. And the servants and officers, so the Romans are gone, they've been dismissed. The servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals because it was cold Jerusalem's 2,500 foot above sea level. Uh, If the world doesn't blow up, many of you will find out in October. Um, And it can be cold there in the spring at night. 
So we're told there it was evening, those who, they made a fire of coals. It was cold, notice, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. And most feel John deliberately tells us that because he had come from Gethsemane, where he had been with Jesus, and it tells us there as Jesus prayed and agonized that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, the hematidrosis when the capillaries burst in the, in the sweat glands from extreme pressure and stress. We have this amazing picture of a cold night where the soldiers are warming themselves by the fire, but Jesus in Gethsemane sweating. Never sweat when he healed a leper or opened the eyes of the blind. Never sweat when he rebuked the wind and the sea. Never sweat when he raised the dead. But when he comes to Gethsemane and he's agonizing with the Father about the punishment that you and I deserve that he's going to take in our place, it says he sweats there. And John tells us, and it was a cold night. And interesting, it says there that Peter stood with them. It tells us the same thing in verse 5 about, about Judas, that he came and betrayed them. And it says, and, and as this entourage comes of soldiers and Levitical, Levitical guards and so forth, it said Judas stood with them. He was on the wrong side. Now, remarkably, John uses the same phrase and says Peter stood with them. He's now on the wrong side of this. They have two different destinies. One repents. The other commits suicide. But Peter is standing with them. Look, Peter <coughs> should have known Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the way of sinners, standeth in the way of sinners, sitteth in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. We, we are Peter here, standing, sitting, walking. He should have known that. This is the counsel of the ungodly. He shouldn't be there. He should have known Psalm 2 where it says the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And he's watching that. It's in front of him. He's listening to these guys around the fire bad-mouthing Jesus. They're all Levites. Oh, yeah, there's the Messiah bound with chains. Must be some Messiah. And Peter's there on the wrong side, standing with them. Then... <clears throat> the high priest, the Cisannus. He then asked Jesus two things, of his disciples, number one, and of his doctrine. He has a twofold question. He asked Jesus about his disciples. Is there a conspiracy? How many of them are they? Are all the guys that ran away tonight, are they your disciples? When he came in on Palm Sunday, multitudes were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the, in the name of the Lord. And look, He's asking that, and then he asks about his doctrine, because if he come, can come up with civil charges or the charge of blasphemy, they have the right then to ask for the death sentence. They want to trump up civil charges. That's why they go to Pilate, because the Romans had taken the right away from the Jews to execute the death sentence. The Jews put someone to death by stoning them. They wanted to stone the woman taken in adultery. Stephen would get stoned, but that was against the law. They were breaking the law. 
the Romans had taken the right away from the Jews to execute the death sentence. And when they did that, the high priest went through Jerusalem, tore his garment, put ashes on his head, and he said that the word of God had been broken. Because in Genesis chapter 49, when, when Jacob is prophesying over his sons, he comes to Judah and he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. The right to rule shall not depart from Judah until Messiah comes. And the high priest went through the streets mourning and wailing because he said the right to rule, that's capital punishment, the right to rule has been taken away and Shiloh has not come. Of course, little did he know in a carpenter shop in Nazareth, there was a little Messiah come to save you and I in the world. So Annas asks him these questions, trying to get him into this context. I want to know about your disciples. I want to know about your doctrine. Is, is there a conspiracy? Is there enough disciples to cause a revolt? The Romans no doubt would handle that. And then his doctrine, <clears throat> if he is blasphemous, they know they could ask for, or even themselves and the Romans would tolerate it sometimes in the temple itself, they execute the death sentence. Jesus doesn't answer the, sec the, the first question. He only answers the second question. Jesus does not answer the question about his disciples because he's protecting them as he's protecting us. But the remarkable thing here. As Peter is denying Jesus, Jesus is protecting Peter. And that never changes. There's so many in this room, so many times in my own life, we've denied Jesus. I've denied Jesus. And as I was denying him, he was protecting me. Or at the right hand of the Father, where he ever liveth and maketh intercession for the saints. When I was denying him, he was protecting me and telling me that I could come with boldness to the throne of grace. That where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. He never asks, answers the question about his disciples. He goes right on to what he was teaching. And Jesus said this. <clears throat> now, three times in verse 20, the word I, when he speaks of himself, it's emphatic. That means there's a great emphasis. So Jesus answered him, I, I mean me, myself, spake openly to the world. And I, I mean myself, I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I, myself, I've said nothing in secret. So there's a great emphasis <clears throat> on the things he says. First thing he says, interestingly, is I me I have spoken openly to the world not to Israel not to the Jews to the world that's why we're sitting here this morning it was prophetic he has spoken openly to the world by the way he's still doing that and there's still the same hostility of unbelievers but Jesus is still speaking openly there's still opportunity for people to be saved 
If you're here this morning, somehow, maybe your dad said, it's Father's Day, you want to give me a present, go to church with me, I don't know. Or maybe your mother said, give that present to your father for Father's Day, probably. But at any rate, look, Jesus is still speaking to this lost world. He speaks openly. He's not like all the the power brokers, you know, the heads of multi-billion dollar corporations in back rooms that are trying to control the population and bring everything to bear on us. He speaks openly. He's the Messiah. He's always got nothing to hide. And anyone here, if you don't know him, you can receive his word today. He's speaking in the light. He's speaking openly. There's no secrets with him. You're a sinner and he's the Savior. He teaches that openly to the world. While Annas and the likes of them have all kinds of secret things going on. Jesus said, I, for myself, I've spoken openly to the world. I, for myself, ever taught in synagogue. There's no the there. In synagogue and in the, because there's only one, the temple, whither the Jews always resort. I've taught in the, the, the religious environment. In synagogue. I've taught in the temple. Everyone has heard me. I've spoken open. I've been in the place where they gather on Shabbat in the synagogue to worship the great I am, which he had said many times in this gospel, I am. I've taught in the temple openly where they have come to worship I am, that I am. I've stood in their midst and they didn't even know that I was there. As Annas, the Sadducee, didn't know who was standing in front of him either. And in secret have I said nothing. Now he's not saying that he never had private instruction with the disciples. He did. What he's saying is he didn't tell one story in one place and another story in another place. What he was Privately, that's what he was publicly, and what he was publicly, that's what he was privately. There was no, no difference. And what, that's, a, that's important for us, too, that example. What we are publicly, we should be that privately as well. And he says, there's no secrets here. I've just been in the open with everything, with the, to the world, to the Jews, to the temple, to the religious leaders. I've been completely in the open. In verse 21, he says this, Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I have said. So he says, why askest thou me? It's a particular phrase. He says, why are you questioning me? Because as we move into this over next, this trial is completely illegal according to the, the Bible, their own word. And the rules of the Sanhedrin. First of all, they're not supposed to try anybody at night. They're not supposed to try anybody the evening before a Sabbath or a holiday. When they tried anyone, they had to have the representatives there to plea his innocence before any accusers. When they had accusers, they'd have two or three, and they don't have any except the ones they paid off. If they decided, so the Sanhedrin is going to be part of this, they're only to meet in the daytime, in the morning, only in the place they meet, not in the house of Annas. If they acquitted someone, they were released immediately. If they felt that the person was guilty and should be killed, 
if it was unanimous, all 70 of the Sanhedrin and the high priest, all 71, if they all voted that way, the the prisoner was let go because there was no mercy in it. There had to be some dissenters. And if they found someone guilty of death, they couldn't pronounce it right then. They had to leave and come back a day after that, we checked the third day. They had to go and pray about it for a whole day. They fasted, they didn't eat, because they were getting ready to pronounce a death sentence on someone. And the Jews themselves said, if you do this wrongly, you're cutting off him, you're cutting off his children, you're cutting off his grandchildren, and the Lord do so to you as well if you do that to him. So this is all illegal. And Jesus understands it. He says, why are you questioning me? You, um, you, you want witnesses? <clears throat> Go and ask those who heard me. They'll tell you what I said. It's, it's so interesting. He doesn't say, you know, go get the lepers that I healed. Go get the blind people that I gave their sight to. Go get the deaf who could hear you asking who I am. You know, go get the lame. Eh, call for Lazarus. Let him come in here and tell you what I'm like and who I am. He doesn't do that. He says, ask them who heard me, not saw me, not experienced. Ask them who heard me, the word of God. The word of God. It's the same today. The word of God. Peter, who's there, will tell us we're not born of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. Now, so it begins in this next verse, remarkably. It tells us there, And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers, a Levite, that is, which stood by, struck Jesus with the palm of the hand, your translation might say with the rod, it can be translated either way, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? First time in eternity, Jehovah receives a slap in the face. It begins. So it begins. The treatment of fallen man towards his creator, his redeemer. And you think of the hardness of the heart of unbelievers. and We shouldn't be surprised when we see the news. We see what's going on. You know, they're talking about AI writing a new Bible and removing everything offensive so that Muslims, Jews, Christians, all religions can read the same Bible and not be offended. Because the word that we heard, ask those who hurt me, it's offensive to this world. This man, you know, he hits Jesus in the face. Just imagine that. The first time that's ever happened. 
this Levite has just smitten his, his maker and his God. Realize, <clears throat> if this man never comes to Christ, is never converted one day in the future, he's going to stand at the great white throne and look at the one who's seated there, whose face he had smitten. Here's the other side. If this man did get saved, I guarantee you this, he carried this burden for the rest of his life. Until he stepped into glory and heard the Lord say, Welcome home. I guarantee he carried it for the rest of his life. And sadly, I think there are too many believers today who have done something or said something or acted in some way or even they think been blasphemous that just carry that every day of their lives. And for some reason, not, they're not going to be relieved of it till they hear, welcome home. The price has been paid. He was our substitute. It was necessary that one should die for the sins of the people. He paid the price in full. It tells us, you know, you know, here in the scene, he slapped him. Well, that was part of those who would beat him with the fist. It was part of those who would spit on him. It was part of those who would scourge him. It was part of those who put the crown of thorns upon his head. It was part of those who, as they're nailing him to the cross, were told, he saith, he said over and over, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he loved this man who happened to slap him in the face, I'm not that good. Jesus said, you know, if someone smacks you on one cheek, turn him the other also. And of course, our question we get saved is, all right, if I turn the other and he hits that, can I hit him back then? You know, I mean, we, you know, Peter, who is there watching this, who had denied the Lord, and he sees the Lord being hit in the face at this point in time, Peter says this, for this is thankworthy in his first epistle, if a man for conscience sake toward God endures grief, suffering wrongfully, he says, but what glory is it if when he is buffeted and you are buffeted for your faults, you take that patiently? That, no big deal. If you get punished because you deserve to be punished and you take that patiently, what's the big deal? He says, he says, but if when you do well and you suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God, it's thankworthy. It's in the view of God, this is acceptable for even hereunto were you called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Peter saw him smitten on the face. 
he, he says, you know, if I've spoken evil, then, then tell me what it was. But if I've spoken well, why smitest thou me? And Jesus uses a different word there, smitest. Dero, it means to flay the skin. It means to beat, to thrash. Fifteen times in the New Testament, it always means to beat. That was Jesus' word that he used of whether this man hit him with a rod, which may come to us in Micah chapter 5, where it says, They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Is it talking about that? Most likely, it seems to me, it's with the open hand. And look, in that culture, like our culture, a slap in the face is an insult. You know, some ways you'd rather get punched than someone slap you in the face in front of everybody. Extreme insult, as it was then. But Jesus, when he's reviled, he reviles not again. When he's smitten, he doesn't take revenge. He says, you know, if the guy that did him, you know, if I did something wrong, I said evil, tell me what it is. But I've, if I've spoken well, why are you taking the skin off my face? Amazing. As we come to the next verse, where it says, Now Annas had sent him bound to Caiaphas. The language there, the literal, says literally, Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas. It wasn't something that had happened. It happens then. Now Annas sent him bound, still bound, perfect tense, was bound, remains bound, passive, which means he allows it. They bound him. He allowed it. Now Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. And they said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it. He said, I am not. Second denial in the house of Caiaphas now. And one of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear he was related to, the, to Malchus, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? So this is John writing. You know, some try to say, well, the, the one who knew the high priest well, the other disciple was Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. You, you can't have that because the writer here is writing as an eyewitness someone who knew Jesus intimately and Peter intimately in the whole situation. And he says, then there's one who's a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off. Only somebody inside would know that. And that one then comes to Peter and says, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And then Peter then denied again. It says, immediately the cock crew. Immediately the cock crows. That rooster's telling us several things. He was telling Peter something right at that moment he didn't want to hear, but something beyond. He's telling us that Jesus is in complete control. The third denial, that's your signal. Peter should know that. He saw Jesus tell the disciples, throw your net on the other side. They fished all night, and he brought the fish and filled the net. 
He said to Peter, go down and throw in a hook. The first fish you bring out, it's going to have a shepherd on his mouth. Go pay the temple tax. He saw Jesus ruling over the animal kingdom. It says they brought him a donkey whereupon a man never sat. And Jesus climbed on the back of that animal and he didn't buck, he didn't complain. He carried the king into Jerusalem. And this time it's a rooster that serves him. And he crows. Peter certainly is heartbroken. But the other part of that, he has to remember, this is exactly what he told me would happen. He is in control of everything that's going on. And our failure and Peter's magnify his atoning work on our behalf. Our failures magnify and glorify the one who died on the cross for us. Our failures demonstrate there is no way anyone in this room could ever get into heaven without Jesus Christ. Our failures take all of the strength and energy off of ourselves and put the entire solution on our Savior on the cross. And perhaps he let Peter fail in a more grievous way than the others because he knew that Peter would have the most prominent place in the early church. And in that rooster crowing, he understood the sifting which Satan asked to perform was over, and he ran out broken, weeping, repentant. Judas hung himself. Peter went out and repented and is restored by the Lord and has a dramatic place of leadership in the church. A.W. Tozier said, I doubt whether God can use a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. And this was plowing up in the life of Peter. How many times, you know, something happened in our life. The rooster crows and we think, oh, he told me this was going to happen. I didn't listen, you know, just. And maybe in that there is for you and I a sifting Maybe there is in that for you and I, you know, a, a time to realize, no, he came. This is, this is the beginning of it all. This is, the, this is the, the greatest injustice and miscarriage of a judicial system in eternity. This should never happen, but it happened for you and I. It wasn't the people that were there that bound him. It was his love for you. It was the cup of the Father that bound him. It wasn't that he couldn't break his way out. It, he was willing to be led as a lamb led to the slaughter because one day he would lead captivity captive himself. As a lamb is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth because he was led as a lamb for you and I. And sometimes the world we live in wants to smite him in the mouth. They don't want to hear what he has to say. And that world has two possible destinies. One is forgiven by the one they actually slap in the mouth or judged by the one that they slap in the mouth. Again, if you don't know Christ today, forget about Calvary Chapel, forget about church, forget about a religion. 
do you know him? He stands in the middle of time and eternity. He came and he walked among us because he loved you. John, when he writes his first epistle, says, you know, I write unto you that you sin not. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who died not for our sins only, but he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the place where all of God's wrath was satisfied. There's no wrath left to come upon us because he took it off. You don't know Jesus today. At the end of the service, let's stand. We'll worship. I encourage you. Let's stand. Uh, You know Christ, come. And for the rest of us, look, sit alone with Jesus today. Read through. There's only a couple verses. Say happy Father's Day to him. Read through these verses. It's the beginning. We enter in. So it begins, this passion. Lord, I know you've overheard. We look to you, Lord. We ask that you would lead us in these things, Lord. In our hearts, Lord, it so often feels not broad enough or deep enough to embrace these things in their fullness, Lord. And even in the ages to come, you say, we'll be learning of these things. We hear Paul say that he gets on his knees so that we might know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of God's love towards us in Christ Jesus. Lord, this is immeasurable in our minds, in our abilities, and yet it is sweet to our taste. Lord, let us love you because you first loved us. We pray in your name. Amen.